Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. We have a guest today who is a superb person to talk about all three. He's Mark Bittman, food journalist, author, former New York Times columnist, and a prolific op-ed writer on critical issues of the day, including an op-ed just this week in the New York Times called Goodbye, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Hello, Department of Food and Well-Being. We have a lot to talk about, Mark, and I am so grateful that you could join us. I'm looking forward to it. Nice to be here, Billy. Mark, you're known to many people through your books, How to Cook Everything, How to Cook Everything Vegetarian, How to Cook Everything, um, How to Bake Everything, How to Grill Everything. Uh, I've written four books, but it's taken me 22 years. So how do you do it? Well, you know, it's not a volume thing. P.G. Woodhouse wrote 120. So um, I'm jealous, though. <laughs> I mean, cookbooks are instruction manuals. And although I like to think that my cookbooks are different from many others because they're written by a real writer as opposed to a chef, um, they're easier than, than the book I just finished, which is a serious nonfiction book. And I certainly couldn't imagine doing more than one of those every three or five years. So the pace is definitely about to slow considerably. If you're you're quoting P.G. Woodhouse, you're uh, obviously a, 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 a what I think of as a real writer. Uh, when did the writing start for you? I really liked my eighth grade English teacher. I don't know. I was always a reader, and there was some point at which I thought, I'm going to be a writer. And I always liked to write. And when I was a senior in college and the year after I graduated college, my biggest source of income was writing term papers for other people for money which I realize is not the most ethical thing in the world, but that's what I was doing. Um, and I felt like there was also, a, there was also, I mean, this is, so, this is 50 years, we're talking 50 years ago, but anyway, um, I, uh, I did a, a project with a couple of classmates as a senior and we had kind of a deal that they would do all the research and, make all the notes and I would write the thing. And that's how it worked out. And, and we did well on it and I just looked at it and it's pretty well written. So whatever it is, I learned how to do it early and it hasn't changed that much. I do have a style. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm a terrific writer, but a, but a serviceable one. And I'm, I'm curious and I do good research and I, I think I think a little bit, differently than many people. So I, I don't know. It's worked out. What can I say? It's so funny that you should mention your eighth grade English teacher because when you said that, I immediately had a flash of walking into my eighth grade English class on the first day. And the teacher who was very influential for me, whose name I would have never called up, at least I didn't think it was in there, but it is, Mr. Krieger, uh, he had written on the board uh, uh, there was a you know chalkboard, and the only thing he had written on it was "words signify man's refusal to accept the world as it is." Hmm. And I don't I don't know who said that. Maybe you do, but I just remember it, and I've remembered it since eighth grade. And uh, he was somebody that got me interested in writing. So I, those influences are very real. Uh, and and and, and uh, where did your writing? And why did your writing start to intersect with food? Well, uh, Herbert Kaufman, by the way, that quote, I have no idea who that is either. So 
we can both look afterwards. You're, you're a serious researcher. You've just proven <laughs> that. You know, I'm a very fast typist, which I think has, I mean, when people say to me, what do I need to do to become a writer? I say, start by learning how to type. I guess when, when speech to text software gets even better, that won't be essential. But there is something about putting things from your brain to your spinal cord into your fingers and onto the screen or a piece of paper. There's something in that process that is key to writing. Anyway, I, um, in my 20s, to continue with the story, I guess, I, I was a radical community organizer um, and I ran a little newspaper and I wrote and edited and did some other things for that newspaper, it was really kind of a one-man show. And um, and then when I was in my late 20s, I want, decided that I was going to write for a living and no one was interested in anything I had to write. I mean, I really couldn't sell anything. And that's a long and probably not that interesting story. But, but then when I, I was writing everything about from bicycle repair to national politics, to travel, to maybe there was a little food in there. I was cooking. I mean, I just tried everything and no one was interested. And then when I, right around my 30th birthday, I kind of forced myself on the local weekly paper as the restaurant reviewer. And, um, I quickly, that was in New Haven, Connecticut, and there weren't a lot of restaurants to review. Um, so after about two months of that, I kind of converted the column from a restaurant review column to a cooking column, and that was the beginning of my cooking column life. And, and it being the 80s and Connecticut, um, it was pretty easy to become established. There weren't a lot of people who wanted to be food writers at that time. So I started writing for many of the local papers and the monthly Connecticut magazine. And, and then I wormed my way into the Times and Cook's magazine by the end of the 80s and, and took it from there. So that's probably not an unusual uh, kind of uh, nonlinear path for a writer. And in some ways it mirrors, and you know, uh, as many, if not more chefs, than I do between us, I think we know a lot, uh, but it mirrors the, the, the kind of the, I think the career of many chefs. One of the things we always talk about when we have, uh, chefs on the podcast, just, uh, recently we were talking to Gemma Stafford, who's, uh, uh the bigger, bolder baking, uh, chef and cook. And, uh, she was just talking about the fits and the starts and the ups and downs and, uh, how, difficult it was until she finally established herself. Uh, and almost every chef that we've had on the podcast, uh, not, well, I don't want to overstate it, but so many of them did not start out to be chefs. They started out to do something else. Um, and then they realized that their passion was, uh, was cooking. Uh, but until they made it, they had to try a lot of different things. And it sounds like the same can be true with writers. Yeah. Well, I did do a lot of different things, but, but what was, I think one thing that's interesting to me, and I'll try to bring this story to the present, is that I, you know, I was really, I spent my, you know, I'm 70 years old. So I was part of the 60s uprisings or whatever we want to call them, the anti-war movement and the envir early environmental movement and even the women's movement and black power movement. I mean, I was supportive of those, obviously. I wasn't a part of them. But um 
as I said, I was a community organizer. And those are those are my values. Those are things that have mattered to me. When I started cooking, it was really as a hobby. And when I started writing about food, I I was a little disappointed in myself because I felt I would have I would like to have done something more meaningful. But as the years went by, and I have to say there's a lot about there's a lot of food writing that's really quite elite and meaningless. And and I was a part of that, you know, travel writing and or fancy hotels and fancy restaurants and so on. But but as the years went by, I felt like, well, teaching cooking is really a valuable, um, a valuable thing to do. And it's it actually is uh, the more people cook. It's not a stretch to say it's a good thing if more people cook. So I, one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself, isn't it? Right. Right. And and it's a it gives you control and it's affordable and uh, it's much more sustainable than eating in restaurants and so on. But. I still, I felt like there could be more to it than that. And and um, right around 2000, which is when I decided to write How to Cook Everything Vegetarian, I think I saw that there was another path, that there was a way to talk about not just food for enjoyment, but food for making the world a better place. And and as the aughts went, went by, I think the ties between nutrition and climate change and environmental sustainability and eating um, justice for farm workers and so on all became clearer and clearer to me. And I started writing about that stuff. And that was a big shift for me. And obviously I still write cookbooks and I still love cooking. Um, and I intend to keep writing cookbooks and I, I cook every day. I mean, during the pandemic, I've been cooking three times a day. So um, that's all still meaningful to me, but the ability starting roughly in 2000, but even more concretely in 2010, when I got my opinion column in the times, the ability for me to write about food as an important part of life and important part of world affairs and justice and so on. That was, uh, very rewarding for me. And I'm, I'm really glad I was able to, to bring that part of of writing into my career to start writing about that kind of stuff and that that brings me to my current book animal vegetable junk which is coming out in a couple of months and um you know which i think is the best and most serious thing i've ever done we can talk about that or not but but that's that's where i'm at now and and so oh and i do want to talk about that in just a moment um so it must have felt in a way we talk about getting the column in 2010 did you feel like you had kind of come full circle in terms of your activism of the 60s and 70s and your values and now this platform to uh, really talk about food as a way to change the world? That, that must have been exhilarating. It was exhilarating. I don't know if it's exactly full circle, but it was definitely exhilarating and um, exhausting. Um, I just wrote an op-ed last week. I think you might have mentioned that at the top, but I, I wrote an op-ed last week and I thought, how did I do this every week for four years? And I don't know how these these people who write op-eds for years and years and years, Gail Collins and Paul Krugman and some of my other ex-colleagues, they're just really unusual and very powerful personalities. I'm, I felt like after four years, I had said, pretty much everything I wanted to say on a weekly basis. And even the even the op-ed I wrote last week, uh, I felt like there's a lot in here that's just 
repetition of things I've said before. And the fact is that if you have a position and you think that it's right and things don't change, then you wind up repeating yourself a lot. But um, yes, exhilarating is the word, really rewarding. And um, uh, I still have more to say and I still have more that I want to do. But really, if I were, if I, if my career ended right now, I'd, I'd be satisfied with it. I wouldn't be happy about it ending, but, but I would think that I spent my time pretty well. So happy about that. Well, let, let's talk about that op-ed because it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly timely, of course, as the Biden administration starts to come together uh, and appointments are being made. Uh, everyone's waiting to see who his appointment is going to be, the president-elect's appointment for uh, Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, your op-ed's headline was Goodbye USDA, Hello Department of Food and Well-Being. And you made the point early in the piece that there was one appointment uh, that the president-elect could make that would uh, address economic inequality, the rural-urban divide, climate change, racism, COVID. Um, talk about the point you were trying to make in that op-ed and why the USDA, uh, if looked at through a different lens, which is, I think, what you were making the case for, could have such a profound impact on our lives. Well, I think it's it's really the argument that that you can't fix any justice issues, any environmental issues, any nutritional issues. Uh, you can't even uh, fix many labor issues without fixing food. Food is at the center of just about everything. And and you could say that about land and you can say that about class and you can say that about race. There are a number of things you can say that about and you'd be right. But food is food is a good and interesting and useful lens to look at um, the structure of society through and um, obviously the Secretary of Agriculture has more power around food than anyone else in, in the United States, can affect food policy, um, has the last say on the farm bill or one of the last says on the farm bill, which governs a lot of our food policy and can ask, could ask, never has asked, but could ask important questions around food that we as a society don't seem to ask and, the, and, and thus we continue with this kind of inertia of letting big food or agribusiness or whatever you want to call it determine how we uh, grow and process and supply food to our people. And, and anyone who has looked seriously at the issues around food knows that that has to change if we want to have a healthy population, if we want to have agriculture that doesn't screw up our land, if we don't, if we want to have food processing that doesn't contribute to climate change and so on. Um, so yeah, the secretary of agriculture could affect that word has it that Joe Biden's going to appoint Tom Vilsack as secretary of agriculture, who was Barack Obama's secretary and, and next to useless. So um, I don't, I don't think we're going to get what we want, which is a, which is somebody for visit somebody with vision for secretary of agriculture. And part of our reason during in writing that op-ed for not suggesting naming names, people were like, well, why don't you just tell us who to appoint secretary of agriculture? Part of the reason for not doing that was that we wanted to put out the values that we thought were important in a secretary of agriculture and that anyone who met those values would have been a huge step in the right direction 
um, for the administration and for Americans in general in terms of food. But I don't now I don't see that happening. So so let me ask you about about two things related to what you just said, Mark. One is the, the first point about the kind of the centrality of food to all of these other issues that have such a profound impact on our life. Uh, you talk about that and I understand it as something to be true. I feel like we still have such a long way to go before most people even make that connection. Or do you think it's becoming more obvious? I know it's obvious to us, but it feels like to most people, that's like a wow. I never thought food could affect all those different things. I I don't think it's obvious to a lot of people. I wrote Animal Vegetable Junk in order to describe my thinking around, around this. Um, and I know that when I go out in public when or, you know, on these days on Zoom, more often than not. But when I go out in public and take questions from people I don't know, or even questions from people I do know, they often, those questions often show that there's room for people to grow in the way that they think about food. That food is bigger than most people appreciate, and that food affects more aspects of our lives than most people appreciate. That um, by making food better, food production, processing, eating, et cetera, better. We make many other aspects of society better and vice versa. I don't think everybody sees those. I mean, I know that not everybody. I don't think most people sees all of those ties. And it's a it's a conversation. It's a long, you know, if you said to me, oh, well, tell us about those ties. I mean, as it happens, this is the second interview I've done today. And the last conversation spent 40 minutes talking about that very that very question. It's not a simple one sentence answer. And unfortunately, a lot of people like sound bites and simple, quick answers. But that's we're talking about a very complicated situation here. We're talking about the well-being of Americans and the and the land that we live on. And and that's all threatened. And fixing it is not is not a one sentence solution. So it's a like I said, it's a complicated situation. It is complicated, you know. As you talk about it, I I think about uh, you know the physicist uh, Richard Feynman when he won the Nobel Prize um, for physics. They asked him, um, you know, could you explain in just a, a minute or two uh, your you know your theory that won the Nobel Prize? And he said, if I could explain it in a minute or two, I wouldn't have won the Nobel. Uh, it's just, you know, it's more. I like that. I like yeah, that. I, I thought you would like that. It's just more complicated than that. So, so let me ask you this. If, if the next, the new Secretary of Agriculture, and this, this may not be a hypothetical at all, this is quite plausible. If the new Secretary of Agriculture reached out to you and said, I'm getting lots of different advice, there's a lot of complexities to, to this job. Um, is there a, a North Star that you think I should aim at? What, what's the one most important thing I should be? thinking about in this role, um, what would your advice be? I mean, there are so many, you know, that's another one of those questions. There are so many steps that could be taken that are actually achievable, um, simple steps that would point us in the right direction that it's hard to, it's hard to choose one. I mean, I, if you said to me, what's the, what's the single realistic thing that could be done pretty quickly that would start to change things in the right direction. You know, I would, I would say make land available, make land available to new and existing farmers 
who want to grow, who want to do diversified regenerative farming. Um, and then if the Secretary of Agriculture says, where's that land come from? That's the beginning of a very complicated conversation. Um, how do you make that land available to people? Also not a simple answer. But it's not, um, you know, you can, you can fantasize and say, what can I, what's the one thing I can do to improve agriculture? And you could say end monoculture or, or make it all regenerative agriculture. But those are unrealistic things to say. But making some more land available to people who want to farm it, that is not unrealistic. And that's a really good first step. I mean, similarly, if FDA had um, Food and Drug Administration said, what's the one thing we could do to make food better? Because FDA is another agency that has control over what we eat. You might say something like Institute of National Soda Tax or Institute of Food Label that's even better than the food label we have now, or there's any number of things. Um, but you know, I think when you get into these kinds of fantasies, it's important to even keep the fantasy a little bit realistic. Um, so that so that you can suggest things that that might be someday in our lifetimes on the docket. Let's talk about your new book, which I think relates to what we're talking about now. Animal vegetable junk comes out in early February. Um, you got to start by telling me how you came up with the title. I know the book from at least the blurb I read is about how history has been shaped by our appetite for food, farmland, and the the money that can come from both. Um, but the title just grabbed me right away, Animal Vegetable Junk. How'd you do it? I don't know. It came to me. I mean, it could have something to do with Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle, which was a spin on, obviously, the old Animal Vegetable Mineral. But I don't know. It just came to me. And the funny thing is, when it came to me, I never sold the book on the title. But when that title came to me, I called my publisher and I said, you're going to want this book. And he said, you're right. We want the book. So I sold the book. Well, I had to write a proposal afterwards. It wasn't quite that simple, but um, I really, I had interest in the book based on the title and the book went through a number of iterations until it arrived. Until I had a plan and, um, and it took me three or four years to execute the plan and, I finished the book, really just finished it over the summer, and it's coming out, as you said, February 2nd. So, um, yeah. And tell, tell us about it. I mean, what's the, I mean, I, I think from the, the blurb that I just paraphrased, uh, I gave a sense of it, but um, tell us, what's, what's the argument that you're making? So here's, I think, the elevator pitch. Humans have made a number of decisions over the past 10,000 years since agriculture began about how to do agriculture. And um, those decisions, as much of history did, accelerated um, in the late, or let's say around the time of the Renaissance or a little bit later, what we might call the age of exploration, um, let's say 1500. Land use started to change. Um, Obviously, the Europeans started to explore and expand um, into, into the Western Hemisphere. Slavery became increasingly 
a part of agriculture. Sugar production began to increase wildly. And all of those things changed the way that we did agriculture and the way that people ate uh, and related to each other over the course of the next three or 400 years. Without getting deep into the history of the United States and agriculture, as I said, that accelerated. And by um, the late 19th century, we had an agriculture, a kind of agriculture that was increasingly based on trade and commodities um, so that people weren't growing food as much to feed themselves and their neighbors. They were growing food to trade and to sell. And then they bought food for themselves and their neighbors. And that happened more and more through the 19th century. And in the late 19th century, during the Civil War, actually, the United States started giving land away, land that was stolen from indigenous people, of course, started giving land away to mostly white men. Um, and that shaped what agriculture was like for the next, until now, that shaped a lot about wealth and justice and a lot about the future of black Americans and the future of other Americans as well. And it also ultimately shaped the way we eat that commodification of, of agriculture, eventually the consolidation of agriculture and, and, um, World War I had impact, the Depression had impact, the New Deal had impact, World War II had impact. And when you get to the middle of the 20th century, what you have is a system in which uh, corn and increasingly rice and wheat, but increasingly soy are the primary crops being grown in the United States. And the primary thing that's done with those crops is convert them to hyper-processed food and food for animals. And that that's kind of where we stand now. That's had a tremendous negative impact on the things I've already mentioned, but also on climate change, because industrial agriculture is a big contributor to greenhouse gases, and our public health crisis, because eating junk food and, and corn and soy-based hyper-processed food is what's brought us to this state where uh, a, a small but significant percentage of Americans, 10 to 15% are hungry, but a really, really big percentage of Americans are malnourished in another way, which is that they eat too many calories of food that's not good for them. And that's a result of what food is available. And the food that's available has grown out of all the things I just briefly discussed. So that's kind of the first part of the book. And then the next part of the book is a description of what food looks like in the United States and in the world today. And some of that's familiar to many people. But as we discussed before, the complexities of it and the way that it affects um, so many other things in our lives that don't appear at first to be dependent on food, I, I go into how these things are all tied together. And then the last part of the book is moving forward, what we can do to make things better, what's happening around the world that we can look at look to for examples of how to make things better. And kind of what I said before when you asked the Secretary of Agriculture question, what are the relatively achievable things that can put us on the right path? Because there's not going to be, it's not impossible that there's a catastrophe that wipes out some or most of humanity, but for things to get better, it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen overnight. That's going to happen 
incrementally. And I think it's important to try to pass legislation, to try to act in ways that show us a path forward, that say, oh, this works. What's the next step we can do after this that will make it work even better? And I think to make food better and to make society in general better means incremental steps in in the right direction rather than saying, here's a five-year plan or here's a 50-year plan. Let's make a one or a two-year plan and start to move in the right direction and evaluate the things that we do and see what comes next. I think it's a, I think it's a, I don't know if it's a fool's errand is the right way, but I, I think it's a mistake to say, here's how we fix the food system. I think the right thing to say is, here's how we go about beginning to fix the food system. And, and that's, I think that's the, that's how the book ends mostly. And, and Mark, the, uh, this is, this is not a, I know it, not a simple answer, uh, answerable question either, but, um, where where do you see the 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 uh, energy for change coming to drive this? Does it come from the top? Does it have to come from the bottom? I'm sure it's got to be a little bit of both. But how do you see that? I feel like the, there's vested interests at the top of our economic structure that are going to be resistant to change. At the other end of society, you've got a lot of people with not enough time, not enough money, want to do the right things, but you know, uh, may not have the, the, the know-all or the wherewithal, or may not get to read your book. Um, where does, what political dynamic, where do we find the political will to, to create this change? Well, it is a similar question to climate change. And I, you know, I think we've seen that we can't trust the energy companies to lead the way on climate change as much as their greenwashing public relations campaigns might have us think that they're on the right side. They're not. And the same is true with big food and agribusiness. They're not going to lead the way toward sustainable agriculture. They're not going to lead the way toward producing and distributing healthy food. So whether people on the bottom, as you say, or people who are, who are not wealthy or powerful lead the way um, or not is really a question of whether it's going to happen or not, because it's not going to happen from the top down. We can push for change. Um, we can push our leaders or our elected officials to make change. And I think that's effective. We can push corporations to make change and that's even more difficult, but can also be effective. But the push has to come from ordinary people and from lots and lots and lots of ordinary people. And I think we're seeing that. We had an election in which more Americans voted than have ever before voted in history and an extremely high percentage of Americans voted. And I think it's safe to say that many, many, what what those who voted for Trump and those who voted for Biden all agree on is that things need to get better. Um, and I think that's, and, and most of those people would agree that corporations have too much power and that things are not necessarily, things are not going in the right direction. Now we may disagree about who the leadership is to take us to the next place, but we've shown that we're willing to push. We've all shown that we're willing to push to make that happen. So that push needs to be focused on food, but it also needs to be focused on racial justice and gender equality, on income equality, and so on down the line. That has to happen because the alternative to it happening is for things to get worse. 
So the so and it sounds like you're an optimist, maybe guardedly so, that the that the grassroots can be mobilized, that there's no alternative to that if we're gonna solve these problems. And you know, that that's very similar, frankly, to what we see in the narrower slice of the fight against hunger in America. Ultimately it's a question of political will and amassing political will. We don't have shortages of food or of, of food programs, but we have not had the political will to connect everybody to the programs and to make the programs work as effectively. So our work, Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign has been um, really focused on kind of mobilizing uh, the grassroots and, and mobilizing a lot of folks who frankly didn't see themselves as activists before, but uh, care about how they feed their kids, care deeply about making the right choices for their family and need the the resources, whether it's financial or educational, to do that. Um, sounds like the same dynamic could be at play here. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I, I'm not really an optimist, but I am hopeful. Um, I didn't think you were going to admit to being an optimist, but I thought I would try it. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, you know. Um <laughs> Once someone, a friend once said to me, and I don't know if he was quoting somebody else, but a friend once said to me, there's plenty of good work to be done. And that is always true. So um, anyone who wants to try to make a change has has the room and the ability and the the wherewithal and, and the reason to make changes. Um, we need to be better organizers. We need to be better convincers. We need to be um, better activists, and and I hope that we're learning to be. We're starting to run out of time here, Mark, but uh, you mentioned, uh, I just want to kind of close with how you're getting through, uh, how you've been getting through the pandemic. You talked about cooking uh, three times a day. And, a lot, and, as, and as you know, a lot of people have, uh, you know, closer to home, returned to cooking, realized its rewards. What other ways have you navigated the stress and the work from home and just all the ways that life is different? What have you done to keep yourself healthy mentally and physically? Well, hopefully I am keeping myself healthy mentally and physically. I mean, for me, the work stuff has not changed that much. It's true that I do less travel than I was doing before, but I, I've worked at home for 40 years. So a lot of this is not new to me. I cook a little bit differently than I used to cook. Some of the stuff I cook is simpler and even simpler than it was before. Um, but I do a little more project cooking than I had been doing um, because there's time for that. I'm reading both good and bad books and, and pretty voracious reader in both realms. I've just spent a, about a week reading really, really bad action adventure novels. And now I'm back into reading literature. So <laughs> kind of happy about that. I read a ton of journalism and I'm, I've been running, I started running, um, I mean, I've been running for my whole life, but I usually take winters off. So I started running right before the pandemic hit. And, and that's it's been a good year for running for me because there's plenty of time. So um, I definitely consider myself lucky. I have the flexibility to do what I want when I want to do it for the most part. And uh, I have control over my own schedule and I'm used to working at home and I'm not poor. So uh Certainly, COVID's been a hardship for everyone, and I've lost some people and had other friends um, 
who got sick. So, so no one's happy about this, but um, I'm not among the ones who's suffering the most. That's for sure. Well, um, we all need to stay healthy. We all need to be careful. We all need to do everything uh, that we're told to do in terms of masks and social distancing. We're not out of this yet. And the level of loss and suffering is almost easy to become accustomed to all these months in, but I can't watch the news anytime, uh, even once a day without just it being driven home, how many people are, are struggling and how fortunate many of us are to be safe and healthy and to have the resources to get through this. I'm really excited, Mark, about Animal Vegetable Junk. Can't wait till it comes out February 2nd. Who's the publisher? Houghton Mifflin. Houghton Mifflin. Excellent. Good luck with that. I hope we'll get another chance. Actually, we now call them HMH. Houghton Mifflin Hardcore. HMH. HMH. Got it. Yes. And uh, I guess you might be doing, uh, the book tour might be virtual this time around. And that means we'll all have a chance to see you in action. Yep. The book tour will be virtual. It'll be a lot like this conversation, I imagine. So um, thank you for the warm up. Well, thanks for doing this. Thanks for the work that you do. Thanks for trying to point us in a, a direction that is saner and healthier uh, and more equitable when it comes to our food system. And mostly for making the point that, uh, which we try to make in various ways on Add Passion and Stir, that so many of the issues that we care about from economic inequality to climate change, to race, to hunger, to poverty, um, to our health. Uh, they're so intimately tied to what we eat and the way we produce uh, what we eat. And you've just been a beacon of, of light and hope on that topic. So uh, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me, Billy. It was really fun to talk with you. And uh, I'll see you at the other side. Well, we've been talking to Mark Bittman on Add Passion and Stir. You can go to our archive of episodes and listen, uh, share, rate us, and rank us at adpassionandstir.com. Uh, thanks to the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign that helped make this podcast happen. And to our producer uh, at District Productive, Paul Woodle and McKenna. So thanks all. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.